you would, open your copies of God's Word with me once more. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra and chapter 9. Ezra, the ninth chapter, and this evening we'll be reading the entirety of it. Beloved, hear once more the word of our God. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities have increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up under the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil the confusion of face as it is this day. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land under which ye go to possess it is is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. 
And after all this, it's come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break thy commandments and and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us? so that there should be no remnant nor escaping. O Lord, God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Let's further reading of God's word, and may he bless us richly under it this evening. Our text is just the eighth verse. And now for a little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. The context is one that's rather dramatic. To situate ourselves in the timeline The scene that we have before us takes place approximately 70 years after Judah's exile concluded, after the initial exiles had returned to the land. Moreover, this moment takes place about 50 years after the conclusion of the construction of the second temple. All of that, of course, is narrated for us in the earlier chapters of the book of Ezra. All of this takes place really after a generation has settled in the land after exile. Ezra, you remember, was commissioned to go to this new generation, and he was tasked, first of all, of course, to reestablish the Jewish nation-state. But secondly, and more importantly, he was sent as a reformer of the church. And what you have in this text is, well, you have Ezra's task before him. The moment is quite straightforward. Ezra and his company have arrived. They are now at the temple. And as they've assembled, the princes pull Ezra aside and and they say to Ezra that, that things aren't well. It's really a remarkable moment. Here you have the magistrates saying that there's a need for reformation. And what was the need? Well, the need was that Ezra would address what was the most pressing concern as the princes saw it, and that was that all of these intermarriages that have been forbidden throughout the scripture with the peoples of the land, well, Israel, the priests, the Levites, and then the magistrates themselves say, we have all, we have all engaged. We've all transgressed the commandment of God. Ezra responds to this, of course, in verses 3 and 4. And he becomes a picture of grief. As the princes share this information with him, he falls, perhaps sometime near the morning sacrifice, into real mourning. All of what you have here describing Ezra's conduct, his visage, all of those, all of those are images of deep grief. And he sits until the evening sacrifice, we're told, which means 
Perhaps Ezra sits there before the temple for approximately six hours. The evening sacrifice would take place approximately at 3 p.m. This is Ezra. And what we're told here that as it becomes known that this is Ezra's response to the prince's notification, he, he has surrounding him now a people described as those who tremble at the words of the God of Israel. At the evening sacrifice, he stands before all of those who are assembled with him in the temple, and he makes the prayer that we read from verses 5 to the end. A friend, as you look at this text, and again our focus is the 8th verse, you'll notice that there is something quite remarkable about it. The 8th verse, the first line reads, And now for a little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God. Concludes a little reviving in our bondage. What's staggering about this, friend, is that Ezra, Ezra is stricken with grief. But this is really the first time you and I get to hear what's going on, as it were, in the recesses of his heart. And, and what you find in this 8th verse is he's not only focused on the great and the heinous crimes that he sees among him, around him and, and that has been confessed to him by the magistrates. But he's also taking note of the mercies that Israel has received. In other words, he holds together in his mind at once the present sins of the people and the present mercies that they've received from the hand of God. I don't know if that strikes you, but I think it should. The man is grief-stricken, but he's not simply thinking about the heinousness of sin, or at least he's not thinking about the sin exclusively. We'll come back to what that means here in a moment. But what I direct your attention to is that not only are you and I given a cross-section of Ezra's heart, not only are we getting, a, as it were, an inside look as to the grief that Ezra was exercised with, but, but you and I are to be, be reminded that this is a very public moment. It's public, of course, because what Ezra prays here is in the temple. It's public because behind him are, is that congregation of all of those people who tremble at the word of God. You'll also notice that throughout the prayer, Ezra is not praying simply for himself. He's praying for all of God's people. This is a corporate prayer. And so, friend, what you and I have here is a model petition, a model prayer. This is supposed to be the voice of the church. What Ezra is engaged here is he is really, as he of course is, is sincerely going before God and sincerely grieving the sins of the land, he's also setting before them a pattern of how they ought to approach God themselves. In other words, what you have here is Ezra himself is both a picture and a model of genuine contrition. But there's something in his prayers. He models how Israel is to respond to God. There's something in this model that is actually quite striking. It's something that does not occur in like texts. I'm thinking of Daniel 9 and of Nehemiah 9 and even the penitential psalms. The commonalities in all of those texts, of course, is this confession of sin. But if you look through Ezra's prayer, what you find lacking 
is an explicit petition for pardon. I want you to notice that. And this really isolates the text from all of those I've just mentioned. Ezra in this text never explicitly pleads for pardoning grace. Now, first of all, you and I can assume that behind this petition, of course, is that plea for for the Lord to forgive. Certainly it's implied. But there is a second question we have to ask, and of course, why is it implied? Why is this not made explicit, as it is in so many other texts? Well, friend, the answer to us comes readily. Ezra is modeling for us, if you like, what is antecedent to that earnest petition for pardon. In other words, he's showing us what needs to transpire in the heart for one to really crave pardon from God aright. And that is, he stresses the heinousness, the aggravation of the guilt of their sins. I want you to notice that he does that in so many ways. And it brings us back to our text, the 8th verse. Of course, he reminds them, as he does at the end of this petition, that that they have transgressed against the express word of God. But but as you look at this text, verses 8, 9, and 10, focus on the mercies of God, the goodness that they've received, the grace that has been given, to bring Ezra to ask the question of verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? What Ezra's modeling for Israel, what Ezra's modeling as a picture of genuine contrition is that before one really begins to seek pardon as they ought to, they see the heinousness of their sin in light of the mercies that they've received and abused. They come to that question that you have here at verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? After receiving so much of His goodness and so much of His grace, we have transgressed still. And surely that is an aggravation to our guilt. Friend, what Ezra models for us then is this idea that that true contrition mourns the abuse of grace. True contrition mourns the abuse of grace. And I, I want us to focus on that very briefly this evening because I think... I think genuinely, friend, when it comes to dealing with with genuine spirit-wrought conviction for sin, in our generation, this theme is is not spoken much of, but it's something that pervades the Scriptures, and our text epitomizes it. It shows us that the heart that is truly broken for sin will, will be broken because of the evil that it sees in sin itself, but also because it sees that it has sinned against such great love. Ezra leads Israel, and of course, as this is the word of God, we as the church are led to see this as the example of the kind of contrition you and I are to have. I want us to see this, that contrition mourns the abuse of grace in two ways. I want us to see, first of all, how it highlights for us the guiltiness of sin, and also I want us to see how it exhibits to us also the grace that is given. So take, first of all, in the eighth verse, those first words, and now. And now, it's really adversative, meaning that the sense of this is, but now, or or despite the foregoing, God has been gracious. 
Despite the sin that has been described there in verses 6 and 7, Ezra, almost at a point of shock, almost at surprise, says, And nevertheless, God has done this. God has given us a little space of grace. My friend, what you and I are supposed to see here is that Ezra registers something of shock. He's saying here, as I contemplate the sins that have just been enumerated in the verses preceding, is it not surprising that God has been gracious? Is it not utterly staggering that God has been so merciful when we have been so rebellious? Now, you and I, we need to remember the context of this. The great transgression that that produced this response in Ezra, of course, was the sin of intermarriage with the peoples of the land. And, And so in order for us to understand this text and Ezra's shock at this moment, I think we do need to go back and ask the question, why was that so staggering? Why was this sin so heinous? If we go back to, for instance, the law in Deuteronomy 7, we find this. It says, When the Lord thy God shall deliver them, that is the peoples of the land, before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them, and thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. The law is straightforward. There is to be no intermarriage. And yet, says Ezra, in the face of all of this, the church has transgressed. Can I ask you a question this evening? That law that I just read to you, does it fall under the moral or under the ceremonial code? Does it fall under the moral law or the ceremonial law? Is this an issue of of uncleanness that belonged only to the Old Covenant, whereby one couldn't approach in a ceremonial way the Lord through either the tabernacle or the temple? Or is this something that's moral? That is something that's grounded in the law of nature, the Ten Commandments. What's interesting, friend, is that all of those texts that proscribe this intermarriage subjoin to those commands reasons. I'll read you just two examples. Exodus 34. Take not of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters, that, and their daughters, that their daughters would go whoring after their gods, and make thy sons to go whoring after their gods. Again, Deuteronomy 7. They will turn, that is, these marriages, they will turn away thy son from following me that they may serve other gods. What's staggering is, of course, there was a ceremonial element to this law. If there was an intermarriage, the man was unclean, the woman was unclean. But what the Lord grounds this commandment in is something that belongs to the moral. He says that in these marriages, your hearts will be turned away from the Lord. What the Lord here gives to Israel is a commandment that ultimately prohibits spiritual adultery. The the issue of intermarriage was not simply about ethnicity and nationality. And it wasn't simply about one's cleanliness in a ceremonial sense in Israel. It was an issue of worldliness. Would you have your children 
be drawn by their hearts away from the Lord. Each time this commandment is given in Scripture, that is the reason subjoined. And so the grief that you see in Ezra and Ezra 9 here, yes, it has as its focal point this intermarriage, but it has, of course, behind it what the law itself indicates. That in these intermarriages, what you have is, you have very much a worldliness in the church. Where the church is now making pacts with the Lord's enemies and, and is willingly allowing their hearts to be drawn after the world and after its idols. And friend, it's at this point that you and I have ample application for, from this text. Yes, of course, you and I can go to those texts, for instance, 1 Corinthians 7, where, where we are not, of course, to willingly enter into mixed marriages, marriages with unbelievers. But as the law itself indicates, there's so much more, something far deeper here. I want you to think just for a moment, friend, that, that while we look at this text from our vantage point, these mixed marriages that Ezra sees here, they, they had all kinds of reasons that, that seemed to stand with wisdom. It, earthly prudence would have indicated these intermarriages were good things. After all, this is how economy was boosted. The, the transfer of wealth flowed so much more easily through these marriages as one family was joined with another. On a social level, of course, this added all kinds of benefits. It built, as it were, a, a fabric of connections, networks that would safeguard, it seems, those who were farmers in the land who bordered these other territories. It was wisdom, it seemed, for these kinds of confederations to take place. Friend, I want you to notice that Ezra sees through all of that. And he says it's worldliness. It's infidelity. And it's a great, a heinous transgression in the face of a God who has been so gracious. I want you to notice that in verse 14, Ezra sees not only marriages in view here, he even sees this kind of worldly wisdom at work. In verse 14, he, he asks, Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations. He, he takes a broader view of these marriages. He takes these things as real confederations with the enemies of God. And he says, that's the problem. You have made peace with the world. The church has sought peace with the enemies of God. We see even godly kings would do this. Jehoshaphat being the foremost example. You remember, as he'd struck up an association with Ahab, a wicked king of the north, on his return, Jehu, that is the son of Hanai, went to meet Jehoshaphat. And this is what Jehu said. He said, Should thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Note what Jehu says. He says, you've knit your heart to an enemy of God. Is that right? For one who professes the Lord to be so attached to the worldling. 
It's the very same thing that Ezra is dealing with here. Friend, I think, I think we need to apply this, obviously, to relationships. Is it the case, friend, that you and I have associations with the world that go beyond necessity? That, that really touch the kind of thing that Ezra here laments? Do we have relationships that are influencing us against the Lord? that would draw our hearts away from him. That's the kind of thing Ezra laments, but we can go beyond that. Friend, what is really the primary concern here is is that kind of spiritual adultery by which someone attaches themselves to the world in such a way that anything will draw them, draw them away from the Lord. One of the most potent examples of this, of course, is what the Lord says to the church in Hosea 2. You remember that through his prophet, he says there that Israel, she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold. And then this, which they prepared for Baal. Know what he says there. He says, they took these things that were good that I gave them And with those good things, they committed spiritual adultery. Gave them to Baal. They made associations, as it were, with these idols. Turned good things, made them idols, and so committed spiritual whoredom. And again, friend, for us, that's where the application, I think, becomes most poignant. What are those things that are drawing us into the world? those things that we hold on to so tightly that is really drawing us away from the Lord? Friend, that's a crucial question. And it's a crucial question because Ezra looks at the church and he sees that. He becomes a picture of grief. But friend, where, where is the rending of our hearts? Maybe we don't see what Ezra saw in ourselves. Maybe we, would, we, would, we don't see that we've made associations with the world on some level. Sought to make peace with the enemies of God on some level. Perhaps we don't recognize that we have contracted with idols. And that we've done so today. But friend, what Ezra models for us is that we ought to be sensitive to such things in ourselves. And it should drive us to deep repentance. But I want us to close, friend, looking at that in light of what Ezra says here in the rest of this eighth verse. He says, A little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place. Now, what you notice there are two things that he mentions. He says, first of all, that there's been a remnant that has escaped. It was a remnant. Uh, I think perhaps we forget that not all that had went into exile came home. Uh, The book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter, indicates that. Even the book of Esther illustrates that point as well. Not all were zealous who had been exiled to leave the lands of their exile and return to the place where God had set his name. But this part had. 
this remnant did. And so Ezra recognizes the grace that's there, that there was a remnant left that sought the interest of God and had not so enmeshed themselves in the place of their exile as to forget the Lord. But the second thing he says here is that they were left a nail in his holy place. Now, you and I can't forget the context. Ezra stands here at the temple, the house of God, where where God had set his name. And and of course, it was described through the scriptures as the dwelling place of God, the house of God, and the place where where if all if the, the people of Israel turned to in prayer, the Lord would hear. That's where Ezra is. And he says here that God has given them a nail. He has fastened them to the temple. And he recognizes that this is a gracious thing. And friend, here you have then Ezra reflecting on the ordinances that God has left to Israel despite their sin, and he marvels at it. He marvels that the means of grace are still available to them after all of the ways in which they've abused them. But I want you to notice, friend, that this is, of course, not out of some kind of penchant for empty religious formalism. Ezra recognizes that in having a nail in the holy place, having a stake in the ordinances of the gospel, is of course to have the God of the covenant and God in the covenant. To have the ordinances of God is to have again the the God of the ordinances and that is really the substance that Ezra here marvels at. But friend, I want you to notice that all of this is deployed so as to bring us to verse 10. All of this for Ezra is only to heighten the guilt, to aggravate the depth of the sin that they've committed. And so that point, friend, that I think you and I ought to step back and to meditate on as we close. Friend, what mercies have we received? And I'm not talking about those common mercies that even the reprobate know. That's not what Ezra here is referring to either. What mercies have you received that are peculiar to being part of God's people? Allow me just to go through the ones that are most fundamental. God bypassed multitudes who, like you, were lost and undone in sin. He stretched past millions who were hardened in their heart like yourself. And he plucked you like a firebrand from the fire. He has not done so with all. Moreover, as he plucked you out from the destruction that you deserved, He set you in a place where the ordinances of the gospel were freely open to you. He set you in a place and in a time where you would have freer access to these things than so many generations before you. He's given you his word in your language at the expense of the blood of his servants. And now for years... He sat you under the sound of his gospel. He genuinely has given you a nail in his holy place. He's given you enlightening, 
spiritual quickening. He's given you reviving. You know what it is in part to walk with the living God. And yet, friend, for all of this, we struggle to tarry in prayer. For all of this, we stagger in our fasting. We come coldly when we approach him in worship. And what has he given us but himself? What has he made over to us in the ordinances of the gospel but means of grace? And yet we come, we come so tritely and so infrequently, so coldly, so distracted. Friend, as we we close this text, I think it's, it's necessary for us to meditate on these things before we come to the table. If you notice that these are observations Ezra makes in prayer before the evening sacrifice, before he lays hold, as it were, in in blood and in fire, the, the promise of Christ and applies it afresh. He meditates much on the fact that he's not only abused the law of God, he's abused his love. He's not sinned only in spite of the the knowledge, the light of nature that was still preserved after the fall. He doesn't marvel here that that, that he has transgressed even though though that inward light urged him to do otherwise. He, he He doesn't meditate so much on any of that as he does on the fact that he has spurned the God who has been so gracious. That's what Ezra models for Israel. What he models for Israel here is a picture of the kind of contrition you and I are to have as well. So, beloved, as we close, this is a text that should make us rejoice that our God is so long-suffering toward us. But it also, friend, it should also lead us to make much of the mercy of God as we make much of our sin. Friend, you and I don't know the depth of the grace that we've received. But it's right for us to meditate on that, that our hearts might be duly broken in this way. What you see in this text, first of all, is that Ezra leaves no no excuses for this rebellion. He, in fact, does everything one could imagine to heighten the fact that these things were inexcusable. He reminds them that the word of God had said that these things were not to be so. And then he goes and he reminds them that they've sinned. They've sinned against great love. There's no excuse, friend, for our compromises and our profession. And so, friend, that's the first point of examination for us. Do you have excuses for the ways in which, the ways in which you've compromised? Friend, like Ezra, you are to leave no excuse. Because truly there is none. You can say that our generation is is prone to these particular sins. 
You can say our crowd, our rearing, all of those things might be contributing, but friend, as the context here indicates clearly, there is no excuse. But the point of comfort in this text, beloved, is that in the 8th verse, Ezra uses the present tense. He marvels not only that God has been gracious to them in the past, but he marvels that still they've been left a nail in the holy place. Friend, what that means for you and for me is that those who are, who are broken, those who are of a contrite spirit, who tremble at the word of God, though we have been so great in our provocations against law and love, as we lay hold of Christ, we are assured, we are assured this steady place, this gracious reception. And so, friend, the exhortation from this text is to rend our hearts. Not to do so out of any kind of sense that our rending could be meritorious, but to rend our hearts that we would truly lay hold of Christ. And especially as we come to a communion table, this is, this is not practiced as it ought to be. Our fastings are so poor and so infrequent. Our acknowledgement of sin so shallow and so general. What Ezra depicts here is one who is going to go to that which really communicates to him most visibly and sensibly the grace that is offered in Christ, but he does so, he does so after he meditates much on how he has highly provoked God, his law, how he has transgressed even his love. And that's a pattern for you and for me as well. And really, beloved, I would say to you that there is no real preparation for the supper without this disposition. It may be in seed form, but it must be there. Because it's only this kind of repentance that's genuine. It's only this kind of repentance that truly allows men to rightly discern the Lord's body. And so, beloved, our exhortation as we close is to plead that God would give us what we see in this text. To plead that he would give it. That we would set ourselves in such a way as not to, to be distracted from this heavy work. And that we would do all of this for his sake if we prepare to meet with him this Lord's day. May he lead us in that work. For his name's sake. Amen. We close our service of worship this evening by taking up our Psalters, and we turn to Psalm 143. Psalm 143 in the first version. We sing there verses 1 to 2, then verses 5 to 8. Lord, hear my prayer, attend my suits, and in thy faithfulness give thou an answer unto me, and in thy righteousness. Thy servants also bring thou not in judgment to be tried, because no living man can be in thy sight justified. Verse 5. I call to mind the days of old, to meditate I use on all thy works. 
Upon the deeds I of thy hands do muse. My hands to thee I stretch. My soul thirsts as dry land for thee. Haste, Lord, to hear. My spirit fails. Hide not thy face from me. Was like to them I do become that do go down to the dust. But mourn. Let me thy kindness hear. For in thee do I trust. To God's praise we stand to sing. Verses 1 to 2 and verses 5 to 8. To God's praise. And please also remain standing afterward for prayer and for the benediction.
blessed and almighty God, we come. Father, a people who have received so much from your hand. Surely your mercies are in the heaven and higher than still. And yet, Father, we are a people. A people who time and again have sinned against light and against love. And so we come, Father, asking that you would lead us in this work. We pray that you would grant greater and greater degrees of repentance. Father, we ask that we would be a broken-hearted people, that indeed Christ and he alone would mend it. Father, we are so apathetic. Our, our hold to Christ is so often so loose. And so much of it comes because we fail to see the heinousness of our sin. So we pray, Father, to drive us to Christ. We ask that you would lead us in this great work. We pray that, Father, you would lead us even now. Cause us to meditate on the sinfulness of sin. To meditate on the mercies abused. And then, Father, to find that in Christ there is even fullness of mercy there. Lord, make us such a people, even now. Bless the work of preparation this week. Father, we pray for each household and each soul that as they approach the table, Father, that they would all know your mercy in leading them to do it aright. Father, we need your grace in this. and We pray that we would know it in great measure. We ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Receive now the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.